Just a heads up, this episode discusses mental health. If it triggers anything for you, you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. And one of my earliest memories was from being in my mum and dad's bed and I was sick and I was a really little girl, maybe five or six, and they had this big lamp, like a big, you know, with a barrel shade, and it was this kind of semi-transparent brown fabric. And I can remember looking at it and thinking, they made lampshades out of juice skins and they used little fingers for the push button. And I can remember thinking that and feeling abject horror. This is Sylvia Griffin. In the late 50s before she was born, Sylvia's parents, born and raised in Hungary, moved halfway across the world to make Australia their new home. Sylvia's parents survived the Holocaust, where her mother lost a brother, sister and brother-in-law. And while Sylvia didn't experience this firsthand, when she slowly started learning the stories, it was like she already knew. It's really interesting because I just knew these things. I don't know whether, my, whether I saw them on TV or read about it. And I guess my family, my grandmother may have talked about these things. I don't know how I knew, but I've known all my life. But for Sylvia, it went beyond knowing. It was like she felt what her family went through. My parents went through the Holocaust and they don't like talking about it, but here am I feeling really sad and upset about it and then I kind of feel guilty and ashamed or whatever it was I felt. So I pushed it aside and felt I didn't have the right to look at it. This is Think Health. I'm Evie Maguire. While the pain of a devastating event for some may subside over time, for others it may not. It can linger or present at random times. What we're beginning to understand is that pain can move beyond the individual experience and be passed down to the next generation. For those with direct connections to the Holocaust, those who have parents, siblings, aunts or uncles who endured, fled or lost those close to them, this notion of inheriting the pain isn't so uncommon where this inheritance is understood as intergenerational trauma. Intergenerational um, refers to transmission from the first generation to the first offspring. This is Kim Slender, PhD candidate from the University of Technology, Sydney. Kim explains that there are two terms used here. Intergenerational trauma, which is the trauma passed on from the first to the second generation, so from a parent to their child, and transgenerational trauma, which travels further down the family line, so for example between the grandparent and the grandchild. But Sylvia Griffin explains the impact is the same. It's living with the memories of the trauma that your parents went through. So it's trying to grapple with the trauma that your parents have gone through that rebounds on you in a way. It leaves its mark on you. Researcher Kim Slender is encountering this firsthand, where for the past 16 years she has been working as a school psychologist in a Jewish day school. A big part of her job involves face-to-face counselling with children whose ancestors survived the Holocaust. 
they have these projects at school which are sort of very important points in their journey and in their education. And, and part of that is something called Project Heritage, which is where they go to the grandparent and they interview them and they get a sense of their history. And it becomes an opportunity for the grandparent to talk about their experience in a way that they never felt they wanted to talk. They didn't want to burden their children. And so now these grandchildren are coming back to them and saying, tell me about your story. And among these students, she recalls seeing higher indicators of depression and anxiety than she anticipated. It's not something that you can pinpoint. It's not an overt quality. It's just a feeling that you get when you sit with these children. And I suppose if I had to name it, if I had to give it psychological language, it would be around heightened levels of anxiety, less of an ability almost to manage stress that doesn't appear to be stress. So sort of making a mountain out of a molehill. However, Kim can't say for sure that these kids are experiencing intergenerational trauma. And the reason why she can't draw that line is because there's still no clear understanding as to how that trauma is passed down. There's still no clear understanding of the exact mechanism of transmission, so exactly how it's transmitted. All we can see at the moment is that it is transmitted. That being said, there are some theories. Kim is part of a growing body of researchers that's looking into how trauma can be passed down genetically. And in her research, Kim is hypothesizing that trauma can become embedded into your genetic makeup as a result of your environment. More recently, we've now understand that there is a significant interaction between our environment and the way that our genes express themselves. If you think about your genes as a loaded gun, the environment can pull the trigger. This process of your genes changing is called epigenetics. Research is now showing us, and there's a lot of stuff in animal studies, that that epigenetic change has actually been passed on to the first generation and in animal studies shown to third and fourth generation after that. Meaning that because trauma becomes embedded into your genes, it can be passed down from generation to generation. Kim says that our understanding of intergenerational trauma and its connection with genetics remains unclear and hard to quantify because for entire generations, this trauma was silent. Especially the trauma of Holocaust survivors and especially for survivors themselves, they often didn't talk. Um, it, there was often shame associated with their survival. There was guilt. There were so many complex grief emotions. I mean, there's you know, a whole lot of stuff that you can say that the first generation offspring inherited the trauma through the silence, inherited the trauma because their parents were overprotected, inherited the trauma because their parents were probably suffering from post-traumatic stress but not actually talking about it. That makes sense. But then you look at the generation after them and you kind of go, there's something else going on. The study, and, and it's such a new and exciting field of epigenetics allows us to have a conversation with language that's sort of located in science and biology that makes meaning or makes sense of this inherited trauma. My, like my mother would never talk about the Holocaust at all. She'd even, you know, as a teenager I'd be watching Hogan's Heroes. It was an American comedy set in a concentration camp, believe it or not. And, you know, we'd all be rolling around the floor laughing. Everyone thought Hogan's Heroes was hilarious. My mother would come in and say, this is really terrible. There's nothing funny about the Germans. 
you know, and I go, oh God, mum. The term intergenerational trauma, would you say that it's a relatively new term? Because I was speaking to a woman called Sylvia whose mother, she's said that she's experienced trauma from that's been passed down from what her mother experienced. And yeah. she was saying that for her mother, it wasn't called that. It was post-traumatic stress disorder, you know. And I just want yeah. to know your thoughts on the actual term and the labelling of this kind of trauma. Well, it's not actually a labelling. It's a proven scientific um, progression. This is Norm Sheehan, Professor of Indigenous Knowledge from Southern Cross University. Norm says that historically... This experience of trauma has always been there. I have worked with an organisation called Link Up Queensland and Link Ups in Australia, uh, looking at um, stolen generations in Australia. And in some instances, you have children who are taken away and brought up away from their family care in foster homes or in institutions, and their parents suffered the same, and their grandparents suffered the same, and their great-grandparents suffered the same. Norm says that as the literature has advanced, we've come to understand this trauma as intergenerational trauma. That work originated in Sweden and in basically in Europe, looking at the um, Holocaust, the Second World War, and a lot of research done in Canada in the 1990s also identified trauma transition as a feature of dominated populations or violated populations. While we've now come to recognise that trauma can be experienced intergenerationally, there's emerging evidence that those who experience this trauma are predisposed to other mental health conditions. There is people suffering damage that's been incurred either to them or in their family. So when you look at Aboriginal communities in particular in Australia, the level of suicide is, is extreme. Kim Slender from UTS says for even the third or fourth generation, there's a genetic predisposition to develop mental health problems if they've had a first-degree relative that has experienced that trauma so that children are born essentially third and fourth generation with a susceptibility to developing mental health things like anxiety, depression and post-traumatic stress if they've had a first-degree relative or their mother or father essentially that has experienced that. And while Kim says that intergenerational trauma can lead to the possibility of someone developing mental health issues, her research to prove this hypothesis is still in its early stages. We know that there's some mechanism that's present through epigenetic modifications that does predispose the next generation to developing trauma or mental health issues. We're not quite sure what that mechanism is, and I suppose this research will be looking to sort of unpack that more fully. While part of Kim's research is specifically looking at young people who have depression and anxiety, she says that there could be other mental health conditions that may be linked with intergenerational trauma. I'm specifically dealing with young people who 
have heightened levels of anxiety and depression. It's not to say that things like borderline personality disorder or bipolar or any of those other um, mental health illnesses are not present or that they're not predisposed to them. But I suppose at that clinical level, I'm not working with that population. So the population I'm exposed to are presenting with anxiety and depression. So that's all I can really comment on. I'm sure, and certainly with the PTSD research, there is definitely evidence that the offspring are more susceptible, as I say, to developing it than the general population should they be exposed to a trauma. This idea that intergenerational trauma can be passed down from generation to generation is complex. And this idea that Kim touches on about having a susceptibility to develop mental health conditions makes this concept of intergenerational trauma and mental health that much more serious. The possibility of passing down the trauma onto your children without even knowing can put an immense burden on someone. It's not their fault that this was passed on. It's just part of their genetics. But if we can do something to reverse it, I think that's the power of the research. This rings true for Sylvia, who says that she has unintentionally passed on aspects of her trauma onto her children. You know, if I, if I compare the way I was brought up to my, my friends' parents, it was a very, very different experience. And not just because they were migrants, European migrants. It was very much about... They're closed off and um, their inability to support me when I needed emotional support. And I think in some ways, completely unwittingly, I've passed that on to my children to a degree. It's all unintentional, but it's ingrained. Norm explains that the passing of this intergenerational trauma onto other family members can become so ingrained in one's makeup that it can take generations to undo. If a child's removed from a family, that's an incredible act of power. If a child is removed from a family because they're Aboriginal, that's an incredible act of power against a whole group. And that repetition of violation is something that takes generations to heal. So how do you unravel this cyclical nature of intergenerational trauma? If Kim's hypothesis is proven true, how does someone reverse their genetic makeup? So if we can identify that these grandchildren have this epigenetic mark that they've inherited from their parents and grandparents, we can do stuff in terms of early intervention programs that can reverse that effect. Researcher Kim Slender hopes that if her hypothesis is proven true, she can develop early intervention programs that can reverse the effects of intergenerational trauma at a biological level. When I think about how I would design an early intervention program, the core of that program would be psychoeducation. So if you strip that back, that's about communicating. You know, it's about um, giving people the language to communicate, giving people the understanding of what's going on biologically. She says that communication can give parents and family members the tools to break the cycle of intergenerational trauma. And yes, it is about communication. It's about knowledge. So if we can 
educate parents to think mindfully about their choices in relation to parenting so that when they are responding to their child rather than reacting, they're actually changing the way their brains are wired. And to me, that's what's fundamentally, it's so powerful about this idea that we can give parents the tool to break the cycle of trauma. Because if you understand that you're you're reacting from a place of emotional reactivity rather than from a place of mindfulness and calm, you're going to have a very different um, effect on your children when you're raising them. So you mentioned before about parenting, well-being. There's a way to stop the transmission mm-hmm. of trauma. But say we talk about... Sorry, sorry can I interrupt you? It doesn't mm-hmm. stop the transmission of trauma. It reverses any epi- epigenetic modifications that might have been passed on. Okay. So the original trauma was there. It was passed on um, through the first generation to the second generation. There's no stopping that process. I suppose the stopping comes from changing the current environment so that it reverses the process. Professor Norm Sheehan explains that communication can come in the form of whole group counselling, where intergenerational trauma can be discussed openly. If you look at the way Aboriginal communities act in relation to elders and act in relation to stories and the stories of victims of abuse, it's a very effective resilience-building approach. So, um, yes... Trauma is transmitted genetically, but so are most other things that we face. That's why we succeed as humans, because the genetic code does pass on those traits that help us succeed and thrive. What does support look like? One of the sad things about um, about that sort of support for victims of trauma is that all that support is reliant on government funding and government funding is controlled by politics. This idea that Norm just raised about money and community support systems is really important. Counselling is often fairly expensive and usually not subsidised. However, Kim Slender points out that there are endless free resources online. Look, there's so much nowadays, especially with the internet. It is a conscious choice to change the way you think, which in turn changes the structure of your brain. And I suppose any sort of community support around that is invaluable. And that's where the early intervention programs would go. They would be um, developed so that they are freely and readily accessible to large ranges of communities because this is a systemic trauma, as we spoke about before. Um, It's absolutely applicable for individual trauma, but the idea of my research is that it, it addresses the needs of a community. For Sylvia, this support and communication came in the form of art. As a Sydney-based contemporary artist, Sylvia addresses her experiences with trauma, memory and her family's history through video, photography, sculpture and textile. With most of her art featuring interwoven personal objects. I think you need to have things in your life that... um express the needs that you have to mourn. So, for example, um, I use fire in a lot of my work. I use burning because it's an ephemeral material and I really like to use materials that are like dust and powder and all sorts of those sort of ephemeral materials that, that you do something with it and it stays in your mind. It doesn't last forever like life. It's the whole thing about absence and representing absence that I find a really compelling idea in with art and with 
the subject matter that we're dealing with. Sylvia has recently collaborated with artist Anne Zahuka to create a contemporary art exhibition at the Sydney Jewish Museum called The Fate of Things, Memories, Objects and Art. The exhibition explores both artists' Jewish heritage as they attempt to piece together and make sense of their fragmented histories through inherited objects, remnants and relics. Like my mother's background and my aunt, I inherited all their sewing implements that I've used in the exhibition and made them quite threatening. So, you know, I've used things that are really personal. I had this cardigan that my sister, my mother had knitted about 55 years ago for my sister and then I wore it and then my daughter inherited it and I had it put away for her daughter and she has a daughter now. Um... And I just thought, I really want to, I want to unmake, I want to unmake it. I want to do a work that's not just looking back, but I want to unmake something and make something new of it. I wanted to do a work that looked forward as well. So I thought about just unravelling it, and then someone said to me, why don't you film it? And I thought, yeah, that's a really great idea. So I filmed myself on the process of unravelling, and I actually had a friend who's a cinematographer set me up with two different cameras and I had a tissue in my pocket ready to be sort of really moved and what I found was as I was unravelling it the way my mother knitted it was like a knot at the end of every row and it was driving me nuts so I started mumbling under my breath you can hear it in the video and sighing and kind of cursing my mother under my breath and I it was really quite funny because it that was a much more realistic representation of our our quite difficult relationship of you know the real love hate that my mother and I really had in our that a lot of mothers and daughters have and so I kind of had to smile wryly to myself while I was doing it thinking you know this is you know how funny is this that I think that I'm going to be all sentimental about it and yet here I am thinking it was going to take me an hour and it took me six hours. How did you really come to terms with your intergenerational trauma? By talking about it and not feeling ashamed at how I was feeling and how uh, blindsided that I was by it. wanted to see if I could use my art like it gave working with abject materiality gave me pleasure and and that must have something to do with working through grief and that I wanted to keep doing that and to do it in a really subtle way and not be didactic I'm not interested in realistic representation I'm really interested in contemporary art and how it can make you feel that's all about how you feel.